Sorry it's taking a while. I'm just figuring out what I want to talk about today. So. Well, first of all, my name is Joel, as Joel uh, introduced, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for letting me come speak and for the opportunity. And I also thank you to friends and family who came to support me. And um, as a pastoral speaker, my primary responsibility is to feed you with God's word. And people do that in a lot of different ways. Sometimes people pick a topic and then they find where the Bible talks about that topic. And, um, but today what I'd like to do is share from a specific passage in the New Testament. So before I get into that, uh, I brought some Bibles up to the front if you don't have one. I think it helps people, but no judgment. I use technology too. Um, I was so happy to hear that this was a CTK after I was um, offered to come speak because that means I'm allowed to wear jeans on stage. <laughs> so thank you for the lack of legalism. Every Christian congregation is different. You, different people have different worship styles, different preaching styles, different dress codes, uh, different emphasis on programs. But what I love about Christian congregations is no matter how we differ in the non-essential things, we all usually agree on the essential things. And that's what keeps us knit together tightly and in God's will and being effective in the world as his representatives. And today, that is our subject. Our subject is the unity of the church. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to just throw out a few categories of things that Christians sometimes argue about. Let me list a few. Christians often argue or say, can't we all just get along about things concerning how we worship, social and moral issues, interfaith relations, political engagement, creation and scientific debate, how we use technology, medical ethics, social issues, whether we should do homeschooling or public school for our kids, how we do mission and outreach, how we engage the culture, race and ethnicity, how do we properly recover from addiction, how do we parent, how do we fulfill the call of God, uh, nationalism, patriotism, and how we witness to the atheistic community. And some of these things that I mentioned, the Bible tells us exactly how we're supposed to go about doing those things. But some of these things, the Bible doesn't say. And some people call those the gray areas. And I'm not going to tell you which is which right now. That's another discussion. But today, we are going to look at some of the essential things that God definitely wants us to agree on, to be of the same heart and the same mind, so that we can serve as one. Through the prophet Amos, God said to Israel, can two people walk together if they don't agree on the direction? The answer is obvious, no. You have to be in some measure of agreement if you can walk together, otherwise you part ways. And so today we're gonna look at the things that we ought to agree on. There is a theologian, a Dutch theologian in the mid-1900s, his name was Dr. Wissert Hooft, and he said, church unity is like peace. We're all for it, but we're not always willing to pay the price. Again, 
an American pastor and author named John Richard Wimber said, it's hard enough resisting the real enemy, the devil. That's a full-time job. But if we start fighting other Christians, we will be fighting two wars, and one of them is suicidal. And it's a good point. We are fighting against ourselves when we fight against the ones that we're supposed to be in unison with because we are all part of Christ's body. God wants us to get along. He wants us to be on the same page. The psalmist in Psalm 131 says how blessed it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. That's Psalm 133. How blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The uni this unity is like oil when it runs down upon the high priest's beard. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon and the mountains of Zion. This is what the Lord has commanded with blessing forever. The reason that he uses oil to represent unity is because oil in the scriptures often represent the Holy Spirit. And from our passage in Ephesians 4 today, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is where true unity really comes from. And we cannot have unity in the church unless we are on the same page and walking by the Spirit. So what is unity? Unity, according to the Holman Bible Dictionary, is the state of being undivided, having a state of oneness and harmony. When things are operating smoothly, when friction is not what mainly defines us, when all the pieces are working properly, that's what unity is defined as. And today, we will see that the Apostle Paul contends for the unity of the church through moral, doctrinal, and Trinitarian harmony. So now I will read you our main passage, which is the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And if you haven't noticed, the the defining word of this part of the chapter is the word one, because there's only one of these things that exists in our faith. And these are the things that also make us one in faith. Before I begin to explain the meaning of the passage, I want to give you some context for why this letter is written and where the place it's being written to. There are many cities in modern day Turkey or Asia Minor that the Apostle Paul wrote letters to to encourage them and to explain what has happened in Israel concerning the Messiah Jesus. The Old Testament had anticipated his arrival and the New Testament explains his arrival and what we're supposed to do in response to Jesus's life on earth these 33 years. The book of Ephesians has been called by some the high ground of the New Testament. 
It's also been called the distilled essence of the Christian faith, or truth that sings, or Paul's heavenly letter. The city of Ephesus, I should have put a map up for you, but the city of Ephesus is, is north and east of the sea that's just above the land of Israel. Most of the events in the Bible happen in the land called Israel, which is bordering the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East. Just north and, and west of there is the, is the Mediterranean Sea, and on the west south end of Asia Minor is the city called Ephesus. So it was a port city on the water, and it was, I think, the fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Ephesus was renowned, and it was about 600 miles from Israel as the crow flies. It was founded in the 10th century BC during the time that Solomon was the king of Israel, just after David's reign. And it had about a quarter million people at the time for its population. So it's a pretty big city, especially for, for that time in history. It had a few impressive things in its city that didn't exist anywhere else, like the Library of Celsus, which was the third library in the world at the time, second to the library in Alexandria in Egypt. And the theater of Ephesus sat about 25,000 people, which they would do their Olympic games and entertainment. There was other monuments that were famous that the city was known for, like the Temple of Artemis, Diana, and a few other statues and, and interesting historical digs that we have found and you could go visit today. On Paul's third missionary journey, Paul ministered extensively to the people in this city and planted a church and he taught in an academic arena called the School of Tyrannus. And this ministry led to the founding of the churches that are addressed in the letter of Ephesians. So Paul already has a relationship with these people and he is checking up on them and writing a letter to encourage them to see how they're doing and to build them up in their common faith. Ephesians is Paul's fourth prison epistle Paul was so zealous for sharing the gospel of what had happened with Jesus in Israel that many uh, surrounding nations didn't like what he was doing, and he was thrown in prison for it. And so he writes four letters from prison, and this is one of his letters. So he wrote this while in jail, and his envoy named Tychicus brought this letter to the Ephesians for their encouragement. The book lacks personal references and so that implies that it was meant and intended to be circulated among many churches there in the first century and has many common application for all churches all throughout history. The book's dominant theme is the mystery of God's will. And to be more specific, that is the church. There's seven mysteries mentioned in the New Testament, and the church is one of those mysteries. The book of Ephesians is all about revealing what the church is. And theologians call that ecclesiology. The mystery of his will. You can find that in the first chapter in verse 9. He's revealed to us the mystery of his will, which highlights our identity. The first half of the book, chapters 1, 2, 3, is the calling of the church. Chapter 1 portrays the church as a body, where we have different parts and different functions different purposes, but we all work in harmony to accomplish the same thing. Chapter 2 portrays the body of Christ, or the church of Christ, as a temple that the Holy Spirit lives in and indwells and makes his home permanently in us 
to the end of eternity. And chapter 3 portrays the church as a mystery because the, the idea of the church was hidden from generations before Jesus showed up, but God decided to reveal the identity of this community called the church. And so we are that mystery that has now been made known and revealed to the world to carry out his will. The second half of the book is about our conduct. First half is about laying the foundation theologically and all that Jesus has done for us, all the spiritual blessings that has been given to us, like forgiveness and adoption into his family and being able to participate in his mission to save all people from their sin. That's the first half. But the second half is now more practical and what we do with the faith that we've been given. First, what God has done for us and second, what God wants us to do for him. We are portrayed as a new creation in chapter 4. We are portrayed as a bride in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, which you all may be familiar with, is about the armor of God and standing firm in the spiritual war we find ourselves in. The church is also a soldier. So this is my, my brief outline of the book for you. Today we are in chapter 3. Chapter 3 the beginning of the application section of the book. So let's start. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole passage for you, and then we'll go back to the beginning and start. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. And again, to begin, Paul starts with a therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what is it therefore? It's a way of indicating that he already said something, and so in response to what he said, now I want you to consider or do this in response to what I had just said. So this therefore is the transition in the book of Ephesians from the, the calling to the conduct. So in light of what I just told you for three chapters, therefore, I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy. He says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. He says this for a couple reasons. I believe the first and primary reason is that Paul is in prison, as I mentioned before. He's so zealous and passionate about what he does that he's willing to go to jail for it. And so even though he's a prisoner of Rome, he considers himself a prisoner of the Lord because it's because of his will that he's in prison. And secondly, not only did Rome captivate Paul, but God's love captivated Paul, and that's why he's willing to do what he's doing. He says, I implore you to walk. And you can tell that he is just so passionate about this. Paul used to be the hallmark persecutor of the Christian community, and he killed Christians for a living, believing that he was doing God's will but he was misguided in his zeal. It was not according to knowledge. 
Jesus met Paul personally on one of his journeys to Damascus. And Jesus basically showed Paul that even though that he, he has good intentions, that Jesus really was God's revelation. He really was the Messiah. And he says, Paul, I want you to stop persecuting me through this community. I want you to start serving me. And he revealed the mystery of the church to Paul. And that's why he is the author of most of the New Testament. I implore you. It's a passionate urging for us to glorify God. Because Paul wants us to succeed at our mission. When he says walk, the idea he's getting at is behaving. Because what, what do you do most of your time? You have activities throughout the day, but you walk in between those activities. And sometimes walking is the activity. There's nothing more normal than walking. It's probably the thing that we think about the least other than breathing. This is a normal, common activity that people do. And Paul is saying, I want you to, I want your life glorifying God to be just as normal as it is walking. I want it to be such a natural activity that you don't even think about it, that it's what your life is all about. So you can't have one foot in God's will and one foot in your will. He wants us to be all in so that we can actually walk that direction. He says worthy. Worthy is an interesting word. Sometimes translators will translate a word to be more readable, even if it doesn't make sense in the way that we normally use the word. Literally, by the way, the New Testament's written in Greek, not English. So there is sometimes translational differences that we have in our laps. But originally, when Paul wrote the word walk, I want you to walk a certain way, the word worthy means of equal weight. So think of a scale, and you have a certain pound. You need to walk of equal weight with the calling that you have. That calling is to, I would summarize it as to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Deuteronomy 6.4. That is extended into more things, like knowing Jesus as the will of God and being acquainted with the gospel message and being a representative of God in this world and spending time with him every day and letting God's truth become a part of you and living it and applying it. That's all wrapped up into the will and the calling that we have. But this equal weight idea, he says this because on one end, the calling to be a faithful Christian is very weighty. So if we walk in a flimsy, non-serious way, there's not a lot of weight to how we walk. He says, I want you to recognize the weight of the call, and I want you to walk with the same amount of seriousness and weight. That's what he means by worthy. To walk worthy means to walk with equal weight as the calling that we have to be faithful unto God first in this world. This first verse I would consider the call to unity, which we will see that wording in just a bit. Second point these first six verses is the nature of unity. Now that we've been invited to walk a certain way, Paul gets a little more specific. And he starts to outline the heart attitudes behind how we walk worthy. Because it always has to start with the heart. Paul doesn't just want to give us a to-do list because we may not like it, we may not agree with it, we may not have the motivation to walk a certain way. And that's why he spent three chapters talking about the, the blessings that God has given us and made us to be. So he continues and says, this is the heart attitude I want you to have, and this is how the church remains unified in their 
operation and function. He says, I want you to be unified by adopting a hard attitude of humility. The opposite of humility is pride, and that's the hallmark attribute of the devil. The devil is all about self-exaltation and getting all the attention and being, number one, the highest position he could possibly gain. But that position only belongs to God. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to be prideful. I want you to be humble. Humble, he being humble is all about considering the needs of other people and being okay not having everything your way. Allowing other people to be raised up to a higher position than you. And we do that through service, through compliments, um, through just selfless acts. And Jesus is always our reference point for all virtue, by the way. So in all of these, think of how Jesus was these things to people, and that will be our reference point. Because I want you to be humble first. I want you to be gentle. He said, and gentleness doesn't mean weak. Gentleness means strength under control. It means you have the power to hurt others, but you don't. Because we need strength to actually stand up to real evil in the world. We need the fear of God to say no when the culture wants us to walk a certain direction that is not honoring to God, that is offensive to God. So he's not saying be powerless. When he says be gentle, he means be under control. Submit your emotions to the will of God as revealed in the scripture. Submit the way you live under the authority of the will of God as revealed in the scripture. Draw near to God personally in prayer and in meditation and in study to submit ourselves to God's will. Have a spirit of gentleness. And then, of course, patience and tolerance go together hand in hand because this is more outward in how we live. When I, when I showed up, I said that I always appreciate that there's differences in churches because sometimes I get to wear jeans. And that's okay. Sometimes our preferences are okay and there's not a black and white addressing in those scriptures. There are many things that the scripture says that things need to happen a certain way or something is definitely off limits or you need to do this as you gather. But some things just don't matter. Some things are just preference or personal conviction. This patience and tolerance he gives is a key heart attitude because he knows that people are going to fight over the things that God doesn't really care too much about. And he's saying, understand what makes you unified, but in order to preserve that unity, you need to let go of the things that are secondary, like the dress code or the worship style, etc. So patience is bearing with people even though what they're doing might irritate you. John Walvoord, one of my favorite Bible commentators and the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, said, patience is the attitude which never gives up on others. It endures to the end, even in times of adversity. It is the self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate in irritation. Now, you might be thinking, does God really tell us to be tolerant? Because our culture has really turned this into a buzzword. You need to tolerate how I live. There is some truth to that, though. God is love, but God does not tolerate sin. So when he tells us to be tolerant, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about preferences. 
He's saying, I want you to recognize what I actually want the church to do and be like, and then everything else that happens in the peripheral, let it happen. Don't complain about the color of the walls of the church or the, the, the pattern of the carpets. It's not a big deal. It's okay to make suggestions, but don't fight and be quarrelsome over disputable matters, Romans 14.1. We often argue too much about the small things, and we need to let go of those. When he says, be diligent, and again, we're in verses 2 to 3 right now, so if you're wondering where I'm drawing all this from, it's right from the scriptures. We're in verse 2 to 3 right now. He says, I want you to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So in other words, Paul's saying, this is a really big deal. Be diligent. Don't just sort of go about your Christian walk saying, yeah, we should probably do this, so sure, let's, let's do it because God wants us to, and it, you know, we'll keep the peace. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. He wants us to cultivate peace. The Holy Spirit has already given us what we need to be peaceful, but he also wants us to preserve that and create as many opportunities to do that. So it's a big deal. He says, be diligent. Make it a priority. Because even if we have all of our doctrine right, and we have the perfect end times theology about the rapture, and we know exactly how the atonement applies to us, and how our sins are forgiven, and how the blood of Jesus actually removes sins from people, if, even if we knew all those things perfectly, if we don't agree on a direction, we're going to walk in different directions. So we need to have the right heart, heart attitude and not worry about the things that catch our attention that don't really matter. Be diligent about this unity as the church. God has established what we need, but we just must guard it and protect it now. And without it, we fall apart. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And God wants us to stand strong, so we need to be diligent. The bond of peace, he says, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So peace is how we stay unified. That word for bond in, in the original Greek means ligament. And, that, and that's the fibrous tissue that holds the joints together in our bones. What's neat about ligaments is it really does hold it together well, but ligaments allow for flexibility. And that's why we need to be tolerant of the preferences, not the essential things. We need to allow for flexibility in the body of expression and preference, but keep the main things the main things. Moving on to the last part of this pericope or section of the letter. Verse 4 through 6, we've now dealt with the call to unity, walk worthy. And then we dealt with the nature of unity, patience, tolerance, love, gentleness. Now moving on to the third part of the pericope, we have the foundations of unity. Where does it come from? And I split this into two sections. So it's not going to show up in the order of the passage that you're reading, but uh, for logical reasons, I outlined it this way. Paul says, there is one body. I want you to think about this question as I, as I talk about these. How do, the, how do these elements unify us as the church? There's one body. There's only one Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's not other Christs. God didn't send his son in the form of multiple people. He sent it one time, 
at the end of the ages as the perfect image of God, Hebrews 1.4, the perfect character, the perfect representation. We cannot know God more than we can by looking at Jesus. That happened once. And he's returning again. But that initial revelation of the Messiah, there's only one Jesus. He's our mediator. Hebrew, the book of Hebrews says there's only one mediator between God and men, and that's the man Christ Jesus. There's only one Lord. Sorry, only one body. The body refers to the church in a symbolic sense because, like I said, we have different functions and different parts of us do different things. Some people, like a nose, may have strong spiritual discernment. Or some people may be like the ear and hear the direction that God wants the church to be heading in their fellowship. Some people might be the mouth and they speak and they build up the church and instruct and take the truth of the scriptures and, and disperse it to everybody else. And some people are like the feet. We would be, those would be like missionaries and they're the ones who carry the gospel to the furthest ends of the earth as Jesus commanded. So you all have a purpose. If you have been born again and you are in the family of God, if Christ lives in you, you have a spiritual gift, at least one, and you have a special place in the body with a special function, and this church needs you to be functioning and growing in that capacity. There's one body. There's also one hope. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. No Buddhist, no Hindu, no Sikh, no Muslim, no atheist, no Christian, because there's many professing Christians who aren't. So Jesus doesn't give a denomination or a label that gets you into heaven. He says, through me enter heaven. There's only one hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. And that hope ultimately is realized and, and experienced in the form of eternal life. And that's what he wants for us. There's one faith, and that's sort of the same thing I just said, the Christian faith. I think I, jump, I bunched those two together, the hope and the faith that we have in no one else, in, by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. That's what the, what the reformers used to teach in their, their Latin fancy phrases. We will never be truly satisfied. We will never be truly healed in any other thing we put our hope in, in this world or, or in the life to come. It's only in Jesus. There is one baptism. Now, I'm not sure if this baptism that Paul's referring to is referring to water baptism or a spiritual baptism, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He said in 1 Corinthians 12, by one spirit, the whole church was baptized into one body. And he's describing a spiritual event, which I believe water baptism symbolizes. I don't know if this is referring to either of those baptisms, but we can't agree that those are both realities that the scripture outlines for us. The Spirit of God did a transformative work in your heart and transferred you into God's kingdom, into God's family, into God's community. And that was a spiritual activity that happened when you received Jesus as Lord through faith. Total switch, total transformation. And then you grow for the rest of your life in sanctification. You become more holy in the way you think and in the way you live. That is a real baptism, as he calls it in 1 Corinthians. 
but there's also water baptism. And that is a thing where we symbolically identify ourselves with Jesus' death and resurrection to say, Jesus, I identify myself with you, and I want to tell everybody the decision that I've made to follow you. And it's, it's an identification and an association with Christ's work. And Romans 5 says, if we have been joined with him in his death, then we will also be raised to the newness of life in the likeness of his resurrection. So if you look at how Jesus was raised from the dead, that's how your resurrection is going to look like. Your body, this body, will be transformed, will be glorified and renewed in the likeness of his resurrection. So continuing on, those are the central elements that Paul gives, and these are the things that we should agree on. These are the things that really unite us and that gives us something in common. Because when we have things in common, we have unity and fellowship. I walked in this morning having met almost none of you, yet I have instant feel at the spiritual level, and that's because we have these things in common. That's why we can have unity because it's the unity of the Spirit. It's not a unity that we make out of nothing. We hold it close, we adopt it, we live it out, and then when we come into contact with another Christian, it's like a, it's like a big magnet. We feel the love of God, and we're able to get along and get past our differences. Moving on to the last part. I know they said 30 minutes, but you know, an hour, who knows? <laughs> Flexibility, right. <laughs> Let's tolerate one another. So we also have Trinitarian harmony, and that's the, that is, the, I think, the ultimate foundation of unity. Yahweh, our God, that's his personal covenant name. Yahweh is Trinitarian. Surprise. That means that God, what God is and who God is, is unique compared to humans. For humans, we are one person per being or substance, but God has revealed himself as three. Now, God does not choose to be the father at some times and then switch and then take off the hat and put on the son of God hat, and now he's the son. And then he, he's like, okay, I need to do something that's unique, so I'm going to stop being the son, and now I'm the Holy Spirit. That's not God. God is simultaneously three persons wrapped into one God. There's fellowship and relationship within God as, for lack of a better term, a family. And I'll show, I want to show you how that looks. Let me shoot off some quick scriptures to you. Um, why don't you go to the next slide? This is from Isaiah chapter 44. And Isaiah 40 to 49 is all about the, you, the exclusivity of the one true God. It's all about God's God's unique oneness as the only God, as the only true God, as the one God. He says, thus says the Lord, which is translated from the word Yahweh, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. And then it, it's the quote of what he says. The Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last, and there is no God beside me. Next slide. I want you to notice there's two speakers in this verse. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. And they both say, I am the first and the last. There is no God beside me. Next slide. They are both called Yahweh. 
two speakers, both Yahweh, both the God, the only God. So there is hundreds of verses that confirm the Trinitarian or the triune or the three-in-one nature of God. This is a really clear one, and I wanted to give you that so you can take that home and look at it some more if, if you have ever struggled with that concept. I don't fully understand the Trinity, but I must accept it. If we can't understand something with the intellect, then we have to apprehend it by faith and let it be true and say, I believe this, God, because you don't lie. And over the course of my life, I will try to understand it more. And that's the right attitude for things that are hard to understand. Other mentions of the Trinity in the Bible. When Jesus was baptized, we have Jesus going down in the water and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon him and then a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there you have the three persons of, of God present at the same time, not taking turns. They are there at the same time. Jesus said in Matthew 28, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not the names. They, there's a oneness about their name. Deuteronomy 6.4, the, the Jews' favorite verse about the oneness of God. Hear or obey Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And that word for one in Hebrew, oh, thank you, I forgot to tell you. The word for one in Hebrew is not the word yahid, which is the cardinal number one that you would use in math, but the word for one translated from the Hebrew is the word echad, and that word for one means a plurality of one or a unit. And the best biblical example of that word one is to think of a cluster of grapes. It's one cluster, but it's many grapes. It's one. This is how God reveals himself. The Lord reveals himself as one, yet as three persons. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Ephesians 2, 18. Through Jesus, we have access in one to one Father. There's more I could give you. God is three persons in one being. This is who we worship. This is who we serve and love and who has saved us from our sins. The Trinity also has conversations with one another throughout the Bible. Did you know that? Psalm 2, Psalm 110, John 11, John 17, and more. The Trinity, the Trinitarian members talk to one another, which proves that God is not one of them at a time. He doesn't take turns being the three. They exist simultaneously. They're distinct sets of consciousness, but they're still one being. And I hope this doesn't feel sacrilegious, but I, the best illustration of the Trinity I've ever heard is the three-headed dog in Greek mythology called Cerberus. He's one dog, but he has three heads. They're distinct sets of consciousness, but they're one being, and yet they're not, they're not the same. They may have different names, but it's one dog, Cerberus. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. He directly intercedes with the church. He teaches us. He illuminates the revelation of God. He comforts us. He convicts the world of sin. And he empowers us to live how we ought to. One Lord, which I already covered a little, he was incarnate. He's the only person of the Godhead, of the Trinity, who took 
who took on physical form permanently. Because Hebrews, as I said before, is he says he's still a man. The man, Christ Jesus, is the one who intercedes for us. So when Jesus ascended, he didn't transcend in, into the ethereal spiritual cloudiness. He still has his body. He's still risen. He's going to return in that body, and we will rise in his likeness. He was incarnate, our one Lord, and he's the best reference for understanding God's nature. He's our Savior. He's the only one who died for our sins. Sorry, the shack is not correct. The Father doesn't have holes in his hands. Only Jesus has holes in his hands. And he's our mediator. There is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Um, the Father holds the highest position in all reality. Even though the Father, Son, and the Spirit all are equally worthy and equally God and equal to hold all the titles that God can have, they do have a functional difference. And there is, this is new for some people, there is a submission, there's a positional submission within the Trinity. Jesus submits to the Father's will. The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus and the Father. So there, there is a chain of command. And it doesn't mean they're less than, it just means they function differently and they've chosen to do so. And that's why there is positional submission in marriage. There's positional submission in parent and child relationships and in church leadership. It all comes from the Trinity. It comes from his order. It comes from who God is, and we express who God is in this world. The Spirit, or the God, our God and Father, is the highest position. He indwells his people. He is sovereign in all circumstances. That is the diversity of Yahweh. The unity of Yahweh which I shared, he is one. They share the same essence. They indwell one another. Jesus said in John 14, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This mutual indwelling demonstrates an intimate relationship. They are both, they are all cooperative in the act of creation. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Father is sovereign in ordaining how everything would happen. And Jesus himself is called the creator in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. The plan of salvation, the Trinity members work together. They're in unison and they're not in disagreement about the plan of salvation. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, we see that the Father planned the church, Jesus paid for the church, and the Spirit protects the church. They're all involved and they're all in unison and they don't disagree in, in that sense. But also in prayer and intercession, um, our prayers go to the Father, but it's okay to pray to the Spirit or the Son. Jesus is the intercessor. The Spirit interprets our imperfect prayers. And he understands the deep things of God, and he makes a way to connect us. They're all in unison. They're all in unity. Our God, our Trinitarian God, Yahweh, is harmonious. Ravi Zacharias the author of the book, The Lamb and the Fuhrer, the Fuhrer, he says, there was both unity and diversity within the Trinity. The first cause of life, and until we find communion, community and communion with God, we can have no real unity within ourselves or with each other. Our unity, the foundation of unity, is ultimately God himself. It comes from him. I'll read you one more passage and then something else. 
Jesus wants his church to be unified. In John 17, he says, he's praying. He says, make them holy by your truth, O God. Teach them your word. Teach them what is true, because your word is true. Just as you sent me into the world, I send them now into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice so that they may be made holy by your truth. I pray not only for my disciples here, but also everyone will hear who will hear their message. And I pray that they would all be one, just as you and I are one, Father. And may they also be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I in them, you in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world knows that you sent me and that you love them as much as you've loved me. And now, to end, I would like to read the Apostles' Creed and then a benediction verse. The Apostles' Creed wasn't written by the Apostles, but it was written to summarize very succinctly the teachings that they gave through their letters and through their, their other teachings. The, the Apostles' Creed goes this way. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So as we conclude, I encourage everybody here, as we leave this place, let the scriptures ignite Trinitarian love so that we may embody the unity of Yahweh. I'm going to go ahead and pray. So let's pray. Worship team can come on up. Lord, I thank you that you have demonstrated everything that we need to do before you ever call us to do it. I thank you that your holy apostles, such as Paul and Peter and James, have written to us in these timeless letters of the New Testament to show us what you have done, how you've blessed us, but then also call us to respond in ways that are pleasing to you. I pray that your word from this morning will unify your church and remind us of the things that unify us and that truly associate us together as one church. I pray that we would be patient with each other and tolerant and humble. And I also ask that your word would not just tell us what to do, but would also instill within us the zeal that Paul had to say, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I pray that the world would see us in harmony, in love, and they would know that we are your disciples because of the love that we show towards one another. I thank you for these believers. I pray that you bless them. I pray that you equip them with what they need to do the work of the ministry. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. Amen. 
read a benediction first to sum it all up with God's truth. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.